drinking from this cup and eating from this table. And I pray, Lord, that our life would match up with the gospel that we confess, with the good news that we confess, that our life would match up, Lord, with the salvation we've experienced, and that we would honor and glorify you not just at this table, but in everything that we do in life. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those elements that you have are disposable, and you can throw them away on your way out. I trust you'll find something to do with them until then. If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Luke, which is where we will be spending our time together this morning. Uh, I hope that if you got a worship guide on your way in, it had a piece of paper in it, it looked like this, and you can use this to let us know how we can be praying for you. There's a lot going on in everyone's lives, and whether this is your first time visiting with us today or you have uh, been a member here for a long time, we want to be praying for you. So if you fill this out and you turn this in in the box that's in the back on your way out today, uh, then our pastors are going to be praying for you and uh, we'll be lifting you up to the Lord all week long for uh, whatever it is that you write down. This is also a great way to let us know more about yourself uh, if it is the first or second time that you have come. Fill that out and drop it in the back and make sure you go to the connection corner before you leave. There are some folks back there who have a gift that they would love to give you. Luke 16 is where we are. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus speaking to his disciples and teaching them about stewardship. The last thing that he said to them was as clear as it could be. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that's pretty clear, right? You cannot serve God and money. Money and the Lord Jesus cannot be your master. It's not going to work. So there's this clear authoritative teaching from Jesus to end last week uh, on that subject of money. This week we begin with the Pharisees who are lovers of money scoffing at Jesus, ridiculing Jesus in Luke 16 verse 14. And this is one more chapter in a long story of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I won't say that we're seeing them at their worst this morning because we've yet to see them conspire for the actual murder of Jesus. That's coming. And of course, we have seen them attribute Jesus's work to Satan when uh, they accused him of being partners with the devil. So that was blasphemous and that was pretty bad as well. But this is right up there. Here is the source of all truth in front of them, teaching them, and their response is to mock him and to make fun of him and to laugh at him uh, the way that maybe a second grader would laugh at a substitute teacher in elementary school, right? Uh, th this is pretty bad when you are mocking Jesus, God in the flesh in front of you. That is your response to his teaching. How could someone be this opposed to God, and yet so many people would look at them and label them as godly. Many people in that first century culture would have looked at those Pharisees and said, these are the godliest men we have to offer, and yet here they are mocking the Son of God. How could someone be this antichrist and yet be viewed as a teacher of the Old Testament? The very Old Testament that foretold of his coming. How can we avoid falling into the same web of lies that false teachers like the Pharisees fell into? Well, we avoid it by knowing what a false teacher looks like so that we can stay away from their teaching. 
so that we do not end up walking after them uh, in a parade of faulty discipleship. So the Pharisees, um, these false teachers, we're going to spend our time looking at them and seeing six trademarks of false teachers uh, in these verses this morning. So I'll start reading for us in Luke 16, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Six trademarks this morning. We jump right into it. Trademark number one. False teachers love money. All right? False teachers love money. Before we even get into what made the actual teaching of the Pharisees false, we can start with their motivation to teach false things. Their motivation was money. And that's what's motivating them to mock Jesus here in the first place. He has just delivered to them a clear ultimatum saying, you cannot serve God and serve money at the same time. And they have responded by scoffing at him and ridiculing him. Why? Because it says in verse 14, they are lovers of money. The literal rendering of the Greek there is silver lovers. They're silver lovers. And we can learn from 2 Timothy 3, that their love of money was a product of a different kind of love within them and not a good one. So in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, it says, But understand this, that in the last days, and the last days is the, the period of time in between Jesus' uh, leaving and ascending into heaven and his return from heaven back to uh, the earth at the, the end of time as we know it. So that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be, listen, lovers of self, lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. You see how Paul connects the love of self with the love of money there in 2 Timothy 3. And the reason they're connected is that people love money because it enables them to love themselves. People love money because it enables them to deny their flesh no comfort, to deny their flesh no pleasure, to deny their flesh no security. They're greedy for income because they love the outcome of the income, which is the satisfaction of their own desires. And the Bible tells us on multiple occasions that money is often a motivating factor for false teachers. So, uh, of the blind watchmen of Israel who failed to teach the people God's truth in Isaiah's generation, Isaiah said the dogs, that's what he calls them, dogs, these false teachers, have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. And so again, the love of self and the love of money is connected by Isaiah just like it is by Paul. They've got this mighty appetite. They want and they want and they want. Nothing is ever enough. And because of that, they have turned not to teaching people truth, but to their own gain. That is their motivation. How about Jeremiah talking about false teachers in Jeremiah 6 where he says, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest... 
everyone deals falsely. And we see the opposite in 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. As we're finding out what a teacher should be, they should not be a lover of money. So 1 Timothy 3.3, an overseer must be not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 1 Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. One of my favorite social media accounts to follow is on Instagram, and it's called Preachers in Sneakers, okay? And here's what they do. This guy just takes photos of preachers on the internet, so... Uh, you know, these churches will put out pictures of, of a pastor preaching that day, and he'll take that picture, and then he will find out how much the clothes cost that, that that preacher is wearing, and he blasts it all over the internet. And it's very interesting to, to watch it, to, um, to look at this social media account. So, uh, for example, uh, Stephen Chandler, a guest speaker at Elevation Church, a church that regularly hosts false teachers in their pulpit, uh, he was sporting a pair of $2,500 Nikes in the pulpit uh, recently. This was just uh, last month. Um, we go to the next one. Here is Toby Adegboyega, who's a Pentecostal pastor in London, did some social media posts for his church wearing an $8,200 jacket. That's like having a pretty nice Honda Civic on your back. You know what I mean? $8,200. Pastor Mike Todd in Kansas City was preaching in these $2,000 Nikes. I mean, they're pretty sweet, I got to admit. It's too grand. Does preaching in absurdly expensive clothing make you a false teacher? No, it doesn't. But when the Bible says teachers should not shepherd for shameful gain and should not be lovers of money, it might not be sending the best message, right? I think we could agree on that. It's a little sign that makes you think, man, I bet if we look under the hood, everything is not okay there. Something is not right. And in the case of the Pharisees, something definitely was not right. They loved money to the point that they would mock Jesus. They would make fun of Jesus for saying you can't love God in money, that you can't serve God in money. They loved money to the point that they did not love people properly. Remember what Jesus said to them back in Luke 11. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They were obsessed with money, but they didn't care about people. If you try to serve two masters, what's going to happen is the agendas of those masters are always going to be competing. This is what we said last week, right? When the values of the Lord competed with the values of money and self, the Pharisees just kept choosing money and self. They neglected justice. And that was a fruit that, that showed what was going on in their hearts. They were filled with greed. They were filled with wickedness. There's a reason that so many ministries who teach false gospels push so hard for people to sow gospel seeds into their ministry. There's a reason why if you go to Kenneth Copeland's website this morning, the first thing you see is a big red button that says, Give. The false teaching is a means to an end. 
And the end is making money off the backs of poor and downtrodden people who are desperate for hope. And I don't apologize for naming names and taking a hard line when it comes to false teachers because to lie to people about eternal matters for the sake of one's own pleasure and comfort is one of the highest evils that you can inflict upon another human being. To lie to them about heaven and hell. To lie to them about what their soul really needs. Also, you can make a buck. Man, that is downright depraved. It's disgusting. I want to stand with God's Word, which refers to greedy false teachers as dogs, as unmarked graves, as enemies of the cross of Christ. I sincerely pray every false teacher in the church today that swindling people out of their money for their own gain would repent. And they would begin to teach the one true gospel. The same way the Apostle Paul did. He went from a money-loving Pharisee to a Christ-loving Apostle. And may the same thing happen to all of these false teachers. But one of the number one trademarks of a false teacher is that they love money. Let's keep going. Trademark number two. False teachers scoff at Jesus. We see this in verse 14. They ridiculed Him. The Lord of heaven is in the flesh, right? He has just stood in the midst of these men. He has delivered brilliant teaching on stewardship, on eternal values. And a heart that is softened to the things of the Lord would have responded by doing what we did just a moment ago before we took the Lord's Supper. They would have examined themselves. They would have confessed their sin. They would have repented of that sin. But instead, they just mock Him. Instead of repentance, they are resistant to the point of blasphemy. And just like their love of money signified something was wrong in their heart, their scoffing at Jesus reveals a deadness of the heart. They had hearts of stone. Hearts that were hard to the truth of God's Son. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, if the gospel is veiled, if people don't understand it, it's because they are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Pharisees were blinded by the lies of Satan, which is what led them to make fun of Jesus, to respond to Him with ridicule. They were dead in their sin. They were unable to accept the things of God because their hearts were in this rebellious state of sin, untouched by grace, untouched by the Holy Spirit. And I think we can stand far off and we can kind of shake our heads at the Pharisees as if the same sin of resistance is not being committed by us, is not being committed in this room this morning. But the reality is, is that the Pharisees mocked Jesus because they had unredeemed hearts and they were hostile toward the Word of God. They were filled with greed and they were filled with selfishness. What is our relationship to God's Word when we hear it? Do we receive it and then we repent of our sin? Or do we resist it? And in resisting it, you might not mock Jesus with sneers and with laughter and with scoffing and with ridicule. But are you not scoffing at Him in your heart if week in, week out, you hear the Word of God preached and you don't apply it and you resist it and you walk away from it unchanged? It's easy for us to look at the Pharisees as these horrible people we would never ever want to be like, and I would commend you to never ever be like them. But what if we're more like them than we would care to admit? 
If we are knowingly rejecting God's truth on the basis of fulfilling our flesh and gratifying our greedy desires, aren't we a lot more like the Pharisees than being like Peter or or John or any of the other disciples who are following Jesus with penitent hearts? We should want nothing to do with the Pharisees and with those who would behave like them and treat the Lord Jesus the way that they treated Him. We don't cast our lot with folks like that. Psalm 1 makes it clear. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We pray for people like that. We reach out to people like that. We don't hang our coat up and call them friends. We shouldn't be walking or standing or sitting with those who mock the Lord. And our lives should not resemble their lives. We should delight in the law of the Lord when we hear it taught and meditate on it day and night. And if we do that, Psalm 1 tells us we will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. So false teachers love money. False teachers scoff at Jesus. Trademark number three. We see in verse 15 that false teachers seek to justify themselves. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. The Pharisees' version of Judaism doesn't resemble true Old Testament religion. True Old Testament religion points to Christ. Everything that you read in the Old Testament, it's all pointing toward Jesus. It's all leading you to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus deserves all glory, that Jesus has no competitors, that Jesus is King over all. This is what the Old Testament leads us to see, that He is the ultimate priest, He's the ultimate prophet, He is the ultimate King, and He deserves all of our worship. The, the Pharisees had taken Judaism and turned it into a spiritual performance system where you do good works and you keep certain rules and you keep certain laws and you observe festivals and you observe rituals and in doing all this you are making yourself acceptable to God. In doing all of this you are making yourself pleasing to God. You justify yourself before Him. And this is opposite the clear teaching on salvation that the Bible provides for us. Right? The Scriptures make it clear there is no work of the law that can justify your soul, that can make your soul right with God. And so in Romans 3, verse 20, For by works of the law no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human will be justified in his sight through works of the law. We're, we're sinners, and we can't make that right through rule-keeping. If you keep reading in Romans 3, we get the answer for how things are made right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All have sinned. The only way to be justified is by the gift of Christ. 
through his death, where he paid the price for all of our sin, where he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. That's what that word propitiation means in Romans 3. And in this way, God remains just in forgiving us because the sin has been paid for. It's not being overlooked. It's been paid for by his son Jesus. And God is the justifier because he is the one who has done the work to remove our guilt and to make us right with him. And why did the Lord design it this way? Why is this the way His plan of salvation works? Because it eliminates human boasting. If my salvation is the work of God, how can I begin to take credit for it? It keeps the glory where it should be at the feet of Jesus. Which is why Paul asks in Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And this is the only way that you can be saved. And the mistake of the Pharisees is the mistake made by every man-made religion on the earth. They set up a system where by doing good works, a person is trying to justify themselves. Instead of relying on God's plan of salvation to make them right with God, they're relying on their own plan of salvation, which will not make them right with God. And then they taught that system to other people. So not only did they deny God's plan of salvation, which is His Son Jesus, But then they taught others to deny God's plan of salvation. They taught others to try to justify themselves. They created their own righteousness to save themselves and taught Israel to do the same. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So not only are you believing in something that's not going to allow you to enter the kingdom. Jesus tells the Pharisees you are shutting the door of heaven in the faces of others by teaching them the same faulty system of salvation. And what's worse is here, Jesus says that they seek to justify themselves before men, meaning their main concern isn't even justifying themselves before God. They just want to look good in front of other people. They want the respect of other people, the praise of other people. And Jesus warned his disciples of men like this in Mark 12 when he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. That's the number one concern of the scribe. It's not pleasing God. It's being able to walk around in the marketplaces and people come up and say, Oh, it's good to see you. You know, it's good to see you, scribe. We love you, scribe. That's what they live for. Same thing in Matthew 23, talking about the Pharisees, says they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. People who have been made right with God through the death of Jesus don't need to worry so much about where they stand with other human beings. I mean, we want to have a good witness. We worry about it to that extent. We're concerned about it to that extent. But we know that the security of our salvation is not dependent upon our strength, and it's certainly not dependent on the approval of others. It's dependent upon the strength of God. And if you're right with God and you're pleasing God, what does it really matter if you're disliked on the earth for doing the right thing? What does it really matter if you're anonymous? Because you can see from Jesus' words, they feared anonymity. They feared the idea of walking through the marketplace and people not caring who they were. 
That was a nightmare to them. Much more of a nightmare than, than not pleasing the Lord. But if you know that you are in right standing with God because of the love of His Son and the death of His Son and the resurrection of His Son, you don't worry so much about what people might say to you in the marketplace. You don't worry so much about being anonymous and your name not being written down in history or in people's minds. You're happy to serve God in secret, knowing that you have been justified by Him and you don't need the praise of people. Matthew 6, Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. False teachers can't stand the idea of religion that looks like that. They always want the show. They always want the credit. They always want to see their name on the screen in big letters when the movie ends. But for a believer who knows their salvation is secure because they are depending on upon the work of the Lord and His plan, and they trust in it, then they don't worry about the show. They're happy for the right hand not to know what the left is doing and to work secretly for the glory of God. Let's keep going. We stay in verse 15 for our fourth trademark of a false teacher. False teachers have abominable hearts. Jesus says that these Pharisees, they, they might fool the people, but they don't fool God. He sees their hearts. The people see the religion of the Pharisees and they exalt it. Right? They put it on a pedestal. They say, this is what godliness looks like. So they have fooled the people of Israel, but they have not fooled the Lord. The Lord looks at that sort of religion that the people exalt and it's an abomination to Him. It's reminiscent of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, starting in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So to the, to the outside world, to, to other human beings who don't know any better, people look at them and outwardly these Pharisees appeared righteous. They say, yeah, those are godly guys. The Lord saw right through it. The Lord knows they're full of hypocrisy. They're full of lawlessness. He sees straight through their hearts and how full of wickedness they are. And the world will applaud empty religion like that. They will exalt it. They'll get fooled by it. Look at the results. Look at the money that's been gathered. Look at the work that's been done. Look at the presentation. Look at the slick speaker. Look at the $8,200 jacket. But God looks right through the show when He looks at the heart of the spirituality that's being offered up. And in the case of the Pharisees and any other man-made religion, what He sees is an abomination to Him. The Greek word for abomination in verse 15 means something that is detestable because of smell. And so this is religion that looks good on the outside to other people, but it stinks to God. He looks at it and he says, this stinks. Their hearts were an abomination. Number five, false teachers do not press into the kingdom. Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until John. This is a reference to the special place that John the Baptist holds in the history of redemption. John is, is truly unique. Because on one hand, John is like the final prophet of the Old Testament. 
He's like the final prophet cut from the cloth of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In fact, his entire life reminded a lot of people of Elijah. And so John is this final Old Testament prophet on one hand, but on the other hand, he's the first prophet of the New Testament era. So he's this special guy that has one foot in in each covenant. And he didn't just prophesy about the coming Messiah the way that the prophets before him did. He saw it. He baptized the Messiah. And Jesus says that since John, since the one who was the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the good news is being preached and people are forcing their way into it. So if you read uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, for example, which I'm going to turn there because I didn't have it written down in my notes. Uh, In Mark chapter 1, Jesus starts his ministry and this is what he says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that's how Jesus starts his ministry. So once John, who was a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, does his job, then what's going on now is the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the king of heaven is here. The king of the kingdom is here. He's on the earth and he is calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. He is calling people to press into the kingdom. To force their way in. I love how the King James puts it. The law and the prophets were until John. Since uh, that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. I love that. So what Jesus is telling us then is that Once that ministry of John has been completed, which once it is completed, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. So John starts decreasing, Jesus is increasing. Once that ministry of John is completed, then people are responding to the gospel by pressing their way into the kingdom, forcing their way in. And you might say, well, that sounds different than I expect it to sound. Because in our modern church culture, we have this phrase, accept Jesus into your heart, which sounds a lot more relaxed than forcing your way into the kingdom or pressing your way into the kingdom. But these are the words Jesus uses here. And here's why. Because Jesus understands and wants us to understand that entering the kingdom is a struggle. It's a struggle. To receive salvation is a struggle. Now, it's a free gift. It's not a struggle in the sense that you need to work for your salvation, right? We've already taken that false gospel and we have thrown that out this morning. It's a free gift offered to anyone who would repent and put their trust in Christ. But that's why it's a struggle. Because repentance is not easy. Self-denial comes with repentance. Self-denial is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But most people are not. Agreeing with God that your sin is evil and that you were wrong and that He is right is not easy. Again, if it were, everybody would be agreeing with God. But they're not. To trust in Christ alone for salvation and to take everything else you've ever tried to trust in, yourself, other people, idols, and to take all of that and to nail it to the cross and say, I'm done trusting anything other than Christ. It's not easy. Taking up your cross and following Christ is not easy. So salvation is a free gift. It's a work of the Lord from start to finish. But it's also something we work out with fear and trembling. And that is the forcing your way into the kingdom peace. 
when you're talking about self-denial and admitting that you're wrong and ending your trust in anything that's not Jesus and taking up your cross, we're talking about a bloody business. We're talking about the narrow way. We're talking about the narrow door. And false teachers, they do not agree with God, and they do not deny themselves, and they do not take up their cross, and they do not press into the kingdom, and they do not teach others to press into the kingdom. They just continue to prop up the false gospel and, and, and sell the lies that will move books and fill seats. The struggle in the soul to crush sin and to surrender your pride and your strength and to throw yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God's Son is an enormous one. And that's why Jesus uses this language. And false teachers do not engage in it, and they will not encourage you to engage in it. They teach false systems of salvation that are easier. Systems where you just follow the rules. You can even keep your sin as you follow the rules. Systems where you're just fine as you are, as long as you can play whatever game of religion that that false system of salvation sets up. But following Christ will lead you to presseth into the kingdom. Following false teachers will lead you to do just about anything but that. Let's finish it out with a review and our, our final point. False teachers love money. They scoff at Jesus. They justify themselves. They have abominable hearts. They do not press into the kingdom. Finally, false teachers make a mess of God's word. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. This is one of the most clear statements you're going to get from Christ in the Gospels concerning his view of scriptures, of the scriptures. If you want to know, what does Jesus think about the Bible? What is Jesus' theology when it comes to the Bible? Luke 16 verse 17 gives you a good idea. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This just confirms what Isaiah has told us, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus looked at every letter of Scripture as inspired. More than that, he says that um, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He looked at every period, okay, every punctuation mark as being inspired, as being from the mouth of God. And, and he looked at it, um, since it was from the mouth of God, what it meant is that not one letter of it would fail us. And I hope you see the Bible in this way. This is how Jesus saw it. I want to see the Bible in the same way Jesus sees the Bible. The Pharisees did not have the same view, and that was evident in how they dealt with divorce. Verse 18 seems out of nowhere. In fact, in my English Standard Version of the Bible, uh, verses 14 through 17 have a headline at the top that says, The Law and the Kingdom of God. And then verse 18 says, Divorce and Remarriage. And then we get to the rich man and Lazarus in verse 19. So my ESV kind of takes verse 18, and they're like, eh, We don't really know what to do with this. So we're just going to slap a heading above it, and it's just going to be kind of this one verse that's all by itself. But it's not one verse all by itself. It very much is connected to verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees do not have the same view of the Word of God. They do not think that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And the way that you know that they felt differently about the law than Jesus is how they dealt with divorce. They didn't ignore the Old Testament teaching on divorce. They just twisted it, which is what false teachers do. False teachers 
are not going to walk into your church and then take the Bible and say, just ignore this book. Right? They, they know that's not going to fly. Right? They know that people go, well, that doesn't sound right. No, they're going to take this book and they're going to twist it so that you go, well, they're using the Bible. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. So Deuteronomy 24 is, uh, in, in the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24, basically it says that if a woman does something to bring shame to her husband, he can divorce her. And if she goes and marries another, she can't go back to that first husband because it would be a shameful thing. And so here's what verse 1 says in particular. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. The word indecency in verse 1 is not referring to adultery. If she had committed adultery, then she would have been put to death. So it's not, it's not referring to adultery. It's some other sort of shameful thing that the husband finds out the woman has done. And while it's not punishable by death, it's bad enough to end the marriage. And so he gives her the certificate and the marriage ends. The Pharisees took this one word, indecency, from this one verse in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and they used it as a blanket statement to justify any divorce for any reason. R.C. Sproul says some of the Pharisees would divorce their wives for burning the dinner too regularly or because they no longer felt they were attractive. Many Pharisees had five or six wives in a lifetime. That wasn't abnormal. And if you were to come to them and say, you can't have that many wives, they would point to Deuteronomy 24.1 and they say, hey, any indecency? Any indecency in my eyes? I can have myself a divorce. And so Jesus is pointing out the way that they twist the Scriptures by bringing up this issue of divorce and remarriage. Jesus makes it clear in His teaching that a divorce is only appropriate in the cases of adultery. And the Apostle Paul added abandonment to the list of biblical reasons in 1 Corinthians 7. Those sins are a far cry from burning dinner or losing a bit of youthful sparkle. But this is what false teachers do. They take the holy word of God, they edit it for their liking so they can live how they want and still act like it's okay. The Pharisees made a mess of God's word, and that led them to making a mess of marriage, just as you would expect from a false teacher that's only concerned with appearance and not concerned with pleasing God. And the form we see this take on in our current culture is how many churches and pastors have refused to take a stand in the midst of the sexual revolution that's taking place all around us. As gender is made a matter of identity and not science, as marriage has been redefined, as phrases like ethical pornography are being pushed on us to normalize perversion, many have taken the route of the Pharisees, have chopped and edited the Word of God in the name of being culturally acceptable. And it's the same sin of pragmatism that Jesus is rebuking in this text. It's a routine sin for false teachers. So what do we do this morning? What do we do with false teachers? What do we do with household names that don the title pastor but preach nothing resembling the full breadth of the gospel that we hear from the Good Shepherd? What do we do with modern-day Pharisees? 
Well, we call on them to repent. We point them toward the gospel. I think about uh, a, a young pastor that was pastoring out in Seattle. His name was Mark Driscoll. Subject of a very, very popular podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which I absolutely recommend to you uh, to go and listen to if you want to hear more about what happens um, in a church when false teaching runs rampant. And Driscoll wasn't, man, the guy was so close. He was so close if you go and listen to his teachings. But in the end, he swung and missed. And in that podcast, um, they talk about a letter that was written by Dr. John MacArthur to Mark Driscoll over a decade ago, where MacArthur wrote him and he said to him essentially as, as an old guy, right, who's been doing it for a long time, Mark, you're so close. If you could fix this and this and this, and if you could preach this and this and this, then you're going to be an excellent, faithful shepherd for many years to come. So MacArthur wrote to the young man and tried to point him toward the gospel. That's what we have to do. We call on false teachers to repent. We point them to the true gospel. We say, preach this for the love of all things holy, for the sake of the glory of God. Preach this. But let me tell you what we don't do. We do not sit at their feet. We do not tolerate their teaching because most of what they say seems to be okay. We remember that Jesus reserved his harshest words for religious men who led people astray because of their refusal to teach the truth of God. He didn't have any politeness for charlatans. He separated from them. Don't watch their TV shows. Don't follow them on social media. Don't read their books. There's way too much good biblical content to fill our souls and lead us closer to Jesus to mess around with poison. We know the trademarks. So let's be aware and let's steer clear. Father God, we thank you for the truth because without the truth, we would not be able to recognize the counterfeit. Without the truth, we wouldn't be able to make sense of the lie. We wouldn't be able to know what to avoid. We thank you that you have given us the truth this morning, and I pray, Father, that we would not stray from it, that we would be very, very careful to hold on to it, to grip it tightly, because we know that our hearts are fickle, and they will easily believe a lie. And so, Lord, let us continue to press into the kingdom. Let us continue to repent and continue to believe the gospel. Let us continue to keep our eyes on the King and to not settle for lesser gods, to not settle for off-base teaching, and to not uh, allow our hearts to be twisted up by lies. Guard us, Lord, with your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together right now.